The GOP super PAC spent $1.1 million, the dark money people, in the last two weeks of the election. $1.1 million to smear me, Christina Hartman, in the last two weeks of the election. You don't do that unless you think you have a problem on your hands. Welcome to What We Will Abide. I'm Sam Schindler. As always, I began my conversation with Christina Hartman with a not-so-brief summary of the evolution of What We Will Abide and how my somewhat sudden, surely rapid descent into despair about six or seven years ago eventually led to a wish to seek out people providing solutions to systemic problems. I can say that I was a bit surprised when she countered with a parallel story of her own that has played out along a similar theme. Mine, however, did not culminate in a stirring run for the congressional seat in the 16th district of the state of Pennsylvania this past election cycle. I'm not a native Lancastrian. I'm from New York. Hence your love of bagels. Uh, <laughs> hence my love of bagels. Um, and my understanding that you, you, you can get it the the defrosting of bagel very very wrong <laughs> and you should be very aware of all of the, like your put your bagel in the oven and i'm sure you put it on for a specific amount of time mm-hmm. and you're very very careful and meticulous about when to take it out mm-hmm. because if you can't get a fresh bagel the next best thing is to put your frozen bagel in the oven that's right these are these are the, exactly the kind of local solutions to systemic <laughs> like Bad, universal bad bagel problems. I mean, it at least makes you want to get out of the fetal position when it comes to the lender's bagel. And if you have a good bagel, you can maybe start your day with right, a smile. Right, right, right. It prom- can fuel your activism. It's right, true. Yeah, I promise you. That I, I fully believe that. So, so you're not a native Lancastrian. But- I'm not a native Lancastrian, but it, it took me a while to kind of become um, attuned to what this place is all about. Mm. Um, and it, it actually took some effort. Like mm-hmm. it didn't just happen. Like you had to like get out there because Lancaster is a place that will keep to itself. Mm-hmm. So for me, this is actually one of those ways in mm-hmm. because it's kind of like always an ode to Lancaster mm-hmm. in a way because um, I'm interested in celebrating the sort of weird paradox of this place, which is that <laughs> it's kind of traditional and rustic and agricultural, but also really urban and progressive mm-hmm. in this weird kind of unexpected way. Isn't it awesome? It is. It is so awesome. And it is a paradox. It, and so it's very, very troubling at times as in to sort of wrap your mind around it. But it is so awesome. And I didn't understand that <laughs> until recently. So now like I'm sort of part of this is celebrating that. So I'll start first at the beginning, which is to say that, um, you know, I grew up here in, um, in Lancaster County. I went to... Um, Manheim Township um, schools and like you though um, I did not I was not born here my family's not from here so technically I'm an outsider um, but we came here when I was eight and so I feel very much Lancastrian <laughs> whether or not my last name my last name Hartman it has like some bona fides around here but I'm no her you know what I mean um, I do I so. now I do <laughs> 
So I'm not a her, I'm not a weaver, but I'm still I'm still all right. I'm still Pennsylvania German at the end of the day. And so anyway, I went to Manheim Township um, School and uh, really had a wonderful experience um, at that school and was so grateful for the public education that I had. And I went on to the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. and uh, to Fordham University for my master's degree. Um, and both of those degrees are in international affairs. And I spent most of my career um, doing advocating and negotiating for human rights all over the world. And I did that um, for a number of nonprofits, notably the National Democratic Institute, which is chaired by Madeleine Albright, um, but also for Freedom House, which is an organization that um, evaluates the civil and political liberties of every country in the world. Um, and I worked in some of the world's toughest, toughest dictatorships, um, both with Freedom House and NDI, but, but more with Freedom House. I worked in Central Asia, in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, um, in places that are suddenly back in the news in a way that they hadn't been before. So I have an expertise in the former Soviet Union, which um, I never thought my my paltry Russian would come back into play. Do you, you have some Russian? <laughs> Just a tiny bit, but my goodness gracious. I had somewhat of a similar experience to you almost around the same time. So six years ago in um, November of 2011, I was actually sitting in um, in South Sudan. I was on a work assignment and I was watching the Jerry Sandusky child abuse scandal unfold on Twitter. And I thought to myself, I mean, first of all, time check. Like, what year are we in that this is and how is this happening? How can so many people know about this terrible thing? And how can this be happening in my state? So... For me, that was a real calling card. Um, doing democracy and human rights work around the world was getting harder and harder to do, not because, I mean, the work's hard generally, but because America's reputation on those things was um, becoming weaker. Let's so, just be clear. I was sitting on my couch having this crisis. <laughs> you were in, like, Juba in South Sudan. And- I was in Juba yeah. on the Nile. Oh, so so there's, there's a small difference no, there no, that but, I should highlight. But still, like, same reaction, right? And I thought... Um, why do I keep spending all this time helping all these other people when my own country is clearly, clearly having issues? So again, working on democracy and human rights my whole career, you know, I kind of thought we were good to go in a lot of ways. And not to say that democracy doesn't require maintenance and that it's on a two-way street and responsibilities and, um, you know, rights and responsibilities and all those things. Of course, those are true. But I just... Um, really thought like things were sort of under control here. And you know, 2011 was a real wake-up call for me. So I, I often say that the feeling that people had, on that many Democrats had on November 9th of last year was the feeling that I had in t- 2011. And so um, I decided to turn my attention home and work on domestic issues. So I took a job with the Joyful Heart Foundation, which is an organization in New York City that supports survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. Um, And so I worked for them for a little bit um, as their director of development and, um, you know, just trying to figure out where I could best use my talent. So in this way that you're talking about action, like I'm a very action-oriented person. So for me, it's like, okay, I've been blessed with so many, like with a, a decent brain and like, again, I'm a doer, I'm pretty pragmatic and forthright. I've got a bunch of qualities that make me good at a number of things and I'm grateful for that. And my job, as I've been told my whole life, is 
to serve. So how can I put those things into action? And I have been doing that. I've just been doing it all over the world. And I mean, that was for America's national security interests as well, right? That's not just for the people of South Sudan. That's also for our national security um, as Americans. But the point was, was could I contribute at home in a different way? And so that's, um, you know, I started looking at the numbers here to figure out what would it uh, run for Congress look like. I was very unhappy with, like like many people, very unhappy with how I was being represented in Congress and how the Democrats weren't making good progress on certain things and how everyone was operating at the extremes and no one coming to the middle. And I thought, look, I got to get in there. I got to figure out what's going I got to get in, figure out what's going on, and then start to fix the system from the inside. Because what was clear to me after, so all my jobs, you know, um, no matter who I was working for, I always had an advocacy component of my work. So I would be on Capitol Hill, but I would be advocating mm-hmm. to congressmen or congresswomen um, to for changes to our national policy or our foreign policy, things like that. So I knew the outside and that advocacy piece from the outside. But what was clear to me was that until I could get on the inside, you know, things weren't going to change. You said that you were sort of like raised to serve. Mm. Like, uh, where where does like is that a thing that comes from your parents? Like, yeah. like how, what is this like a value that your family instilled in you? Like, where does that come from? Yeah, no, I mean it's a value. Definitely, it's a value that my family instilled in me. Not everybody and... has that. Some people yeah. are raised to you know like please make a lot of money so you can take care of me when you get older. Please, yeah, <laughs> like, sure, do, whatever. Like that's not a value that everyone is raised with. So my um. My mom works at Sacred Heart School here in downtown Lancaster, and she's been there for 30 years. And, you know, I was raised Catholic, um, and and having gone to Fordham, which is a Jesuit school, there's really a call to social justice and to serve. Um, I can earn enough money to pay my bills and do what I need to do. So in a way, I'm in a position of privilege that some other folks aren't. So I can choose to make different decisions about how I spend my time. And it's not to say I, I shouldn't make money or don't make money, but then also how can I give time away? And as you know, running for Congress, you work for free. So 18 months working for free um, last year and, and the year before. So, um, but really, you know, public service is, I think it's one of the greatest things that you can do. And, and folks around here do it really, really well. And they do it in different ways, right? So other people run a small business, they make some money, then they donate money back to charity. Some folks um, maybe work in the school system and then they donate their time on the weekends. You know, folks have all different formulas for doing it. But one of the reasons that I actually got into the work that I did in democracy um, and human rights all over the world was because of the example that Lancaster set for me. And so in this community of people where, I mean, I was, you know, fundraising through sub sales at church when I was 11 years old, right? Like that's just to become a fundraiser for a nonprofit that does, you know, does domestic violence and sexual assault work, you know, survivors, like it's, it's all connected, right? As in we've, I've been fundraising since I was 11, just at my church for a different reason. I've been serving people. I've been volunteering. I've been working in those capacities my whole life. And so yeah, I think it's something my family instilled in me. The very first nonprofit that I ever worked with was um, here in downtown Lancaster. So I was a junior or senior in high school. And at the time, it was, you know, the height, close to the height of the AIDS epidemic. And um, there was a local organization that was supporting um, patients who had AIDS. And so we partnered with them. My like, As in, I started a group at my high school so that we could raise money and raise awareness for them around their things. So again, it's 
I feel <laughs> I feel like it's all very connected and sort of very full circle because because of the community in which I was raised, because of the values mm-hmm. with which I was raised, both in my family, in my community, in my church. But those things led me to the career that I had, and then I gave that back. And I think that's what Lancaster is all about. Yeah. So this, so that it seems as if, or the way you've described it, is it brings you to the point where you say, okay, um, the epitome of public service is to become literally, a, you know, a, mm-hmm. a servant in our government. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at our government now and the way you described mm-hmm. it as being tremendously divisive, mm-hmm. um, and just sort of everybody just cutting each other off at the knees wherever you turn, and and that being kind of one of the reasons why you were actually strangely interested in being involved in the first place. Like, can it do it? Like, like what can government do that you may, are you better equipped to do it maybe as a private citizen mm-hmm. in non-for-profits and doing development, the kind mm-hmm. of things that you're very, very adept mm-hmm. at? How come you chose to go in, to, like, at least to make the step towards becoming a congressman? Given that both of my degrees are in international affairs, I am in part a political science major, right? So my degree is political science, economics, sociology, and history. It is a social contract between the citizens and the government. And so I believe that we have chipped away at what used to be our social contract. Rather than have a discussion, a national discussion, which would be really hard to do, but rather than have a national discussion about certain things that are difficult for us to handle, like, or uh, we disagree as to how they should be handled over the past 20 years, we've decided to just chip away at certain things and to create self-fulfilling prophecies whereby we reduce money to schools, for example, and then say public schools don't work. Um, I think that what we need to do is to figure out what it is that we want as a society. So that leads me to public goods. What are public goods? And this is what government can provide. So where we are in disagreement at this very moment in time is, is education a public good? What are the public goods? Is healthcare a public good? Are there certain things in our society that maybe can be provided in some way by the private sector But there is a perverse incentive, economically speaking, in a for-profit environment. When we take a look at um, healthcare, so my mother has a torn rotator cuff at the moment, and that means that she could have surgery or she can have physical therapy. Now, I don't know that this is true because I don't have any evidence to back it up, but is it more profitable for the hospital and the insurance company to have her have surgery because that's a more expensive item and they get a greater profit off of it or to give her the physical therapy, which is $50 a session. And again, they limit how many sessions she can have, but the profit margin for them is not nearly as good. So these are the questions, you know, so are there things in our society where it sort of, again, is a perverse incentive in an economic model? So that doesn't mean we can't have private providers. So, um, for example, as you know, in France, like all doctors are private, like they're private practices, but the payments run through the government in the same way that Medicare does. So things like this are the conversations that we need to be having. And these are the things that government can provide if we agree. If she needs surgery... Because that's what doctors who have her best interest in mind decide, or they choose physical therapy. Either way, she should be the priority. Her health should be the priority. Mm-hmm. The very fact that there's any 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 financial incentive involved 
corrupts the entire process. Right. I would think that the physical therapy would be a much cheaper option for them, yet they limit the number of sessions she can have, whereas a $10,000 surgery or $15,000 surgery, there's, like, no one's questioning, like, there's no limit on that. Again, those are things where I would want to dig a little bit deeper and understand, you know, what's really motivating that. And again, having the conversation um, and understanding what we as a society consider to be a public good. You ran for the seat in the 16th district. I've heard this, so you'll confirm it for me. Like, you um, got more votes for a Democratic candidate than anyone Anyone. has. Anyone ever has, like, Mm -hmm. historically speaking, Mm -hmm. in this district. That's um, obviously nothing to sneeze at. Um, and yet, you know, this community seemed to think that for whatever reason, the status quo and the establishment candidate um, was the way to go. Uh, where is the tipping point? At, at what point will people begin to like wake up and recognize that they're voting against their own self-interest? Right, did you ever read um, What's the Matter with Kansas? I did not. Thomas Frank is the guy's name. It was written in like 2004 and mm-hmm. anticipated the rise of the Tea Party. He's from Kansas and he's a journalist. He researches this in the late 1990s, early 2000s. He goes down. I think Sam Brownback is the governor yep. at the time. Mm-hmm. Is he still? Mm. I mean, he was a senator and now he's the governor. I right. Think. So he, he spends time down there in that Republican machine um, in what had become, you know, cities like Wichita, for example, which went to Topeka, which had become like economic wastelands for small business mm-hmm. um, and you have like big box companies mm-hmm. coming in and just like pushing everybody out and um, he interviews people and he says to them you're you know your downtown is there tumbleweeds literally like rolling through it there are no jobs why are you continuing to put people into office whose interest is in serving the um, you know, the like serving the big corporations who have pushed you out of all these positions and people are like well it's because Republicans understand family values. It's because Republicans are against abortion. Mm-hmm. It's because Republicans are against gay marriage. Mm-hmm. It's because Republicans are the only way for us to fight back against the Hollywood liberals. Mm-hmm. And he's dumbfounded because these are these are not these are average word, middle class people. These are upper class people as well. These are people that come from the neighborhood that he grew up in, which is a pretty affluent neighborhood. Like, and he's he, he doesn't understand how. Down the line, of course, the economic policies that the you know the Bush administration is going to put into place um, are going to serve to really harm these people, uh, and certainly on down the line in, in terms of like the economic hierarchy. And yet, to a man, they put these people back into office each term, and it's the war of ideology that seems to win. Is his point? That's mm-hmm. that's the book. Um, so now you don't have to read it, but you, you should read it. It's a, it's a great book. <laughs> Is that what happened? What's happening here? I mean, is Lancaster kind of like a, a mirror? These Definitely are, not. These are intelligent, well-educated people in large part, right? Yeah. Why well, can't say? I think most Americans actually are more intelligent than they get credit for. I know this. They, <laughs> they take they take a lot of flack in, in the media. I, I mean, argue that Americans are actually really smart. Yes, <laughs> all of them. Yes, I, I completely agree with you. And like, whatever you want to label. Um, and by the way, I've been saying that. Like, not just since I became a politician. I've been saying that since I my first trip abroad in, like, 1992. Like, so, uh, yeah, and they get a bad rap, and it's not... You, you label any... Whatever you want to label the mainstream, mainstream media, whatever you want to label them, left, right, centrist, whatever you want to label them, uh, collectively have bashed the American public 
um, for, in, in large part, every single news outlet except for Fox News bashing the American public for putting Trump into office and calling them morons when, as you just said, and I, my experience has been that they're not. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so it's so what's going on? <laughs> well, that is, in fact, <laughs> the multi-million dollar question. <laughs> and if I had the answer to it, I would be getting um, paid a lot more money. So I'm going to give you my opinion. <laughs> well, let, before you do, I, let me lay one more layer onto it. Sure. This will help you no, no, to localize okay. things, because one of the questions I had here was, if I can find it, um, so the purported ideological divide amongst Americans, is it a reality or is it something used to, sh- to sow discord for the benefit of the elites? Mm-hmm. Um, we can look to your campaigning experience for empirical evidence to bear this question out, right? Mm-hmm. So you can bring this local, like in the 16th district instead of like the entire United States of America. Well, so here's the best thing about Pennsylvania's nope. 16th district is we are a mini America. Okay. It is the best like little litmus test. And this is what so many people I will continue to sell this to people and jam it into their little heads um, because some (laughs) folks in Washington just don't want to hear me on this point. Pennsylvania's 16th district is a mini America and it is the best place to see all the dynamics of America happening in one place and it's just two hours north from Washington. So if you want to do like some experiment somewhere, we'd be a great place. Why? Because we have three third tier cities. We have Lancaster, Reading, and Coatesville. Mm. We have suburbs of Manheim Township, of Hempfield, of Kennett Square. Um, Kennett Square, by the way, is all blue now. So it's not even, it used to be purple, but now it's blue fully. We have farmland in western Chester County. We have farmland all over Lancaster County. Like, we have it all. We have everything. We have the largest refugee population per capita. We have. Uh, 17, 18% Hispanic population. I mean, we have everything with regard to education. We're like, we're not as well educated as the Philly suburbs, for example. So, like, once we're you like get. Right, I mean, as far as the national average, we're, like, sort of right we're probably close to the national average. That would make sense. But vis a vis politics and sort of how folks look at things, they like, they're looking for college educated, right. uh, the, as in they correlate college education with urban area, suburbs, and then they correlate that with democratic sort of indices. So, but the point being that we're just like this lovely, lovely mishmash of it all, and we are close to urban centers enough that we can get to them. We're not isolated. We've got theater and arts and the whole nine. We got it all. And we've got... You know, two cities that are steel towns. You know, Reading is a former steel town. Coatesville is still a steel town. Like, we have, like, just sort of this little bit of everything that makes us a perfect case study. So, um, but getting to your point about, um, you know, this divide and folks voting, quote-unquote, against their own interests, I find that unfortunate. But bottom line is that... It's how we communicate to people. So how are we communicating our values as Democrats? And honestly, we've done a pretty terrible job of that. So the Republicans have done an excellent job at that. And like that's where we need to improve, right? So why aren't our messages resonating? And no, people don't have time for your like 20-minute diatribe about whatever it is. They just don't care. And they want to feel good about something and they want to hang their hat on something and they want to feel good about you. So what we were able to do in this past election is to galvanize a number of those folks. Now, 
the Trump wave that came through, I was a victim of the thing that like, the rest of Pennsylvania felt, right? As in, I was sort of lumped in with a wave that I could not control. So in the lead up to the election, my opponent... Um, you can uh, say his name. It's, 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 not, it's allowed. You're allowed to say his name. I don't really need to give him the free advertising. Okay, <laughs> I don't need to give him free advertising. That, that guy. <laughs> um, he, uh, I'm, I don't know if you saw it. They had a fundraiser with Paul Ryan here in the district in October. So this was a quote-unquote safe Republican district. They had to send their number one guy out yeah. to their safe Republican district in early October. So they must have had, Your so word. in September, we had polling that had me three points away. They must have had the same polling because you don't send your top dog out to the quote-unquote safe Republican district unless you have a problem on your hands. Then the GOP super PAC spent $1.1 million, the dark money people, in the last two weeks of the election. $1.1 million to smear me, Christina Hartman, in the last two weeks of the election. You don't do that unless you think you have a problem on your hands. And we had polling that showed us one point away in those last few weeks. And they must have had the same polling. Otherwise, they would not have spent that money. So they were shaken in their boots. So at the end of the day, unfortunately, we got caught up in this Trump wave, something that none of us predicted. No, apparently no one in the nation, except for like one guy out in California. Folks voted to some degree on party lines. We did get a lot of people to switch over, actually. We had lots of Republicans voting for me. Um, I think that folks voted for my opponent, not for him, but they just voted straight party. And so it wasn't about him at all. It was about... Trump on the top of the ticket or an anti-Hillary vote or, you know, it was, so it's very complicated um, in terms of this particular election. In a lot of ways, I think it's an anomaly. We've just, I think, just gotten the full, the full data from the election now, like sort of the crosstab and all the sort of geeky bits. And so now we can really analyze what, what really happened. But the point is that you've got the situation where we garnered the most votes of a Democrat ever. We had many people come over from the other side, and we had people engaged and excited. Turnout in this district was like 75%. So between our election and the top of the ticket, in Kennett Square, I had almost the same number of votes as Hillary. And I, I won that area, and I had more votes than the Senate candidate. You said that the Democratic message either didn't get out or isn't um, coherent or cohesive enough for people to make sense of it, or the word you used was terrible. <laughs> it's not a soundbite. Pro-life is a soundbite. And I'm not saying it's not It's not difficult to figure out how to say boring things like Social Security and Medicare in a different way, but I do think that it's not rocket science. I don't want to underestimate the job, as in it's difficult to talk about the things that we want to talk about in a succinct way, but equally, I don't think that it requires the entire nation brain trust to figure it out. Okay, this you, you may not be able to answer this question because it might be you know too much like uh, potentially shooting yourself in the foot. But is the Democratic Party dead? No, absolutely not. And so let me. So full disclosure, I have always worked for Democrats my whole life. I worked in my very first internship. I worked in Secretary Cisneros' scheduling office in the Clinton administration. But I was actually not a registered Democrat until 2012. Um, so again, I've always worked for Democrats, been Democratic leaning, but have not officially been a part of, you know, sort of registered as a Democrat until 2012. 
In part because I was frustrated with both parties and didn't feel like I had a tent. I mean, I always knew that I was more in the Democratic tent, absolutely positively, without a doubt. But, you know, like many Americans, frustrated with the two-party system, right? And like, where do I go? Where's my home? And so a bit of that was, honestly, growing up and understanding that this is the two-party system unless we're going to have, like... A change in our constitution and a number of other things are going to happen. It's unlikely that we will ever have a multi-party system. So, like, let's accept that. No, no, it's true. (laughs) Well, this is the thing that tremendously frustrates me. You're talking to someone who who feels maybe even more strongly than you that the two-party system is antiquated and corrupt. and, And I don't even think that there's anywhere. Like, it's not, like, constitutionally mandated that we need to have two parties. So we need to have a much broader spectrum of voices. And I feel like there's been a sustained effort to silence third-party candidates. Um, and I, I think that I, you're shaking your head, which, okay. Like, I, I just, I think that the both the parties want to keep their power and in so doing have kind of, like, pushed away other voices. Sure, sure. I'm, I mean, I mean, I can understand why. On both you, sides. I, I can understand why you would say that. And, of course, both parties want to retain their power. Um, I, I don't think, given our current structure, and I think professors in government over at FNM would agree with me, that unless certain things change, it's just, like, it's literally not likely that we will have a multi-party system in the way that, you know, we don't have a parliamentary system. We right. don't. It's just... Like, just really the way our government is set up and created, that unless we change some major things, and given that we can't sort of agree on some very basic things, I'm not sure we're going to have the opportunity to, like, change the Constitution. But I will say this. I think, again, it's a little bit about growing up. It's understanding that if this is a system that we have, not the system that we want... How do we deal with it and how do we make it better? And so this is also part of you know my mission in, in running for office last time was to get in on the inside of the party and to understand how things work. So that's not to denigrate things that happened before me. So there's a lot of good things that have been happening in this county, in my other counties, in Berks and Chester County. Like there have been lots of things that have been going like well for 10 years, as in like Progress has been slow, but it's been happening at the national level. It needs some revamp for sure, but there's still some pieces there that are good. But it needs an injection of um, younger folks. It needs an injection of thinking slightly differently and perhaps more strategically. It needs um, just sort of like a little savvier on the communications front. I think it requires... Um, at the state level, you know, because of course the party is like local, state, and national, and those bodies don't always coordinate with one another. And again, what I see happening in Congress today, and I was in the chamber the other day on Capitol Hill. Um, I was with Congressman Cartwright, who was speaking on the floor. Um, it was the uh, Dodd-Frank repeal, and I watched Smoke Smucker speak in favor of it. And I watched um, Congressman Cartwright speak against its repeal. To me, that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, why are you just, like, why are you repealing the Affordable Care Act? Why are you repealing Dodd-Frank? Why not fix the pieces of what's there? And so for me, the parties are the same way. It's that, and the Republicans are in the same situation, just like they, they have the power, they've consolidated their power that's helpful to them, but they're in a crisis of Well, it's amazing to me that every single branch of government, they have a majority. And they still can't get anything done? It's special, isn't it? So it's two things. It means that their party is completely fractured on the inside, mm-hmm. right? There's no cohesiveness, it as you say. And 
that their plan for gerrymandering is not working. So they can get it on the scoreboard, as in that they have the Republican seat. So their scoreboard for the number of seats they have is higher. But when push comes to shove at the end of the day, so if you take the three seats um, to the east of us, right? So the 6th, 7th, and 8th. All three of those gentlemen, all three of them are Republicans, they're all voting in favor of the Affordable Care Act. They're voting in favor of that. They are voting as Democrats right now. Because they're Republicans who know that they're about to get the boot in 2018. So, interestingly, again, on the the big scoreboard, like, yes, the Republicans have the seat. However, at this moment in time, because people are so engaged, again, going back to civic engagement and people's responsibility to actually be engaged in the process, they have, people in those districts have directly produced that result, which is that those Republican congressmen are voting in favor of democratic issues because they can't do otherwise or they're going to lose their seats. So Trump gets elected. Um, we, we don't need to say too much about him. It's, it's, it's obvious. Seriously, I'm not even trying to be glib. Um, in the five months that he's been in office, you see what that administration looks like. And you, all the scandals, manufacturer or no, are indicative of his complete and total incompetence as a human being. On the one hand, you could say like, well, this is the end of... The presidency as like a reputable office. Mm-hmm. No one will take this seriously anymore mm-hmm. um, because he'll ruin it all. And actually, we've seen some evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, what you just mentioned is that people have become engaged in ways that they haven't been in four decades. Mm-hmm. Maybe next time around, maybe in 2018, what hasn't happened in the past, which is that most of this country, except Lancaster County, which or 16th District, which apparently votes in great number. Um, will be more engaged and they will sort of impose their more progressive will on their elected officials. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's tragic in the things that the Trump administration are doing, repealing ACA, repealing Dodd-Frank, dropping the biggest bomb ever in the world on Afghanistan, etc., and so on, are horrible things and could (laughs) lead to the end of the universe. But on the other hand, if we manage to survive, you have this whole opposition which is now gaining strength. I mean, what do you think? I think Trump may ruin the presidency for this particular period of time. However, because I am my father's daughter, my father, who's, by the way, a Republican, I believe in the pendulum that it will swing back the other way. So whoever takes over next, everything will be super formal and like, as in it will sort of be... You you have trust in that. Be in the extreme. I do. I actually have a lot of trust in our institutions and I have extreme trust in our civil servants because I know many of them (laughs) and I have worked with them. And again, that's not to say that as with any institution, whether it's a for-profit, non-profit or government, there are bad apples everywhere and people who work inefficiently. But I find that the people who work in the top positions in government um, in Washington, D.C. to be some of the smartest and, um, you know, I mean, talk about public servants. These are some of our nation's smartest people who have chosen to move their lives to Washington, D.C. to to benefit our country as a whole. So I do have great faith in our institutions. Do I think those institutions will be sort of like, again, eroded or like chipped away over this period of time? Absolutely. 
Do I think that they will be eroded in such a way that they cannot be restored again? No. I think that will sort of be okay. I feel the hysteria and I feel like I understand, you know, especially as someone who's worked in dictatorships, the authoritarian dictatorial qualities that Trump has are certainly not lost on me. Um, But what's different about our country versus other countries is that we have 250 years of institutions. Um, And those, at the end of the day, are the things that will save us. Even if he kills the budget on all of them? Even if, like, you know, NEA goes away, NEH goes away? So none of it, so because of the budget process, right, like, um, cuts actually, things don't start happening um, until September, Mm -hmm. well, because the budget year is ends on September 30. So the fiscal year starts on October 1st for the government. Oftentimes they do two years of funding. So they may have already done like that second round. Like I think for some agencies in some places they have like money until what year are we in? So, so like until 2018, they have some funds. So, so that's also like, again, these, what we consider when you're working inside government, laborious, irritating budgeting processes where you're like, ah, we can't get the money when we need it. And why this crazy fiscal year that starts in October and all those things that bother you when you actually do that work, which I did for a while, suddenly become magical. You're like, well, thank God we have those things. Thank God it is so laborious. Thank God it is all those things because it's making it very hard to just dismantle in one fell swoop. And and that, that is in fact why government is not like a business. So while we can desire for things to be more efficient, um, absolutely. Should the government be more efficient? Yes. Should we find ways that we can save money? Of course. And implement new technologies and, and make things better? Absolutely. But we should also acknowledge that government is not a business. And a business is not government. Those two things are not the same thing. They are different things. And they will run differently because of that. What are, so let me... I want to go back to something you, you said earlier where you, where you were noting progress that's been made on local, state, and national levels over the last decade. And yeah. I want to ask you about some of the things locally that you see that you like. You said it's, it's gradual, it's mm-hmm. even glacial, but it's happening. What I saw in the numbers when I decided to run for Congress, um, you know, I analyzed, you know, Wolf, Governor Wolf did really well in 2014 in places like Manheim Township, um, you know, Eugene De Pasquale did really well. Kathleen Kane at the time did really well. So those things that I could see in the numbers back in 2014 have started to come to pass over the past few years. And that's thanks to the hard work of those Democrats. It's also thanks to the changing demographics. It's also thanks to the change in national conversation. And it's thanks to the Republican Party falling apart in its own right. Because I grew up in Manhattan Township with a bunch of Reagan Republicans. So I always say... My line is that a bunch of Reagan Republicans raised a bunch of Obama Democrats to do exactly what we were supposed to do. Take a first class public school education, go to college, move to a city and change the world. And that's exactly what we did. I cannot count, like tell you how many people that I went to school with who did that. Hmm. So those people should actually be quite proud of us. I could say so. Now all we need is all those people who moved to those big cities to move back. And if they did, mind you, this place would be bluer than the sky. It's just that they moved to cities. And so, and again, Lancaster has a habit of um, people like moving, I call it the boomerang effect. So people who grew up here will move away for a while. They really do. They really And they move back. That's an actual thing that's happened here for quite some time. 
And so, um, you know, that's that's part of it. So it's a combination of our growing Hispanic population. It's our increase in transplants. It's the boomerangs. It's all those things that are pumping up those numbers. So one of the challenges, of course, is that um, the county parties, it's sort of going back to the gerrymandering, but also the gerrymandering not in and of itself, but just districting and how it works because it's based on population. So a district will never, I mean, it can be definitely neater than it's <laughs> done right now, but a district will never be like just one county or just, you know, uh, like one full county and another full county put together, right? right. Just like the sheer it numbers of it don't really work. arbitrary the way that the, I mean, no, it's right. not, it's actually very calculated. No, no, no. It seems bizarre the way it's done. Right. But just to say that at one time, Pennsylvania's 16th district was just Lancaster County. Uh-huh. That will never be, right? And so the, the county parties have to work in for an election like mine, right? In theory, those parties should be, those three county parties should be working together. They do not. And as then that's not a criticism. That's just like, as in that's the, the sort of actual fact. So it takes races like mine or a presidential or a senatorial race to bring those counties together. Um, and that's okay. Like, as in people in Leicester County don't think of themselves as part of the Lehigh Valley because they're not. But people in Berks County do. And people in Chester County think of themselves as suburban Philadelphia. And people in Leicester County certainly do not want to think of themselves as suburban Philadelphia. Um, whether they are or not is something else, but, um, you know, the op-ed pages of the LNP are filled with articles about how we are not a suburb of Philadelphia. So, you know, taking all those things into account, it's a very, and, and taking into account that Democrats by their very nature are, it's like herding cats, you know, Republicans by their very nature are fall in line kind of people. The reason that so many people getting back to your book with the, what's the matter with Kansas it's that these are fall-in-line, patriarchal, authoritarian types of people themselves. I mean, not exclusively, but they, they are more comfortable with that kind of operation. Uh, and they see the benefits of it, that if we all come together and do what we're told, then we actually can control half the legislatures and more than half of the legislatures in the country. Like, obviously, that works. Hurting cats, not so much. <laughs> People ask me about my politics, and I describe your politics, and I would say unpopular. Like that's 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 the way. I, or or infuriating, because I'm frequently always way to the left of the people that I talk to about things. Um, you may have guessed that, but I'm not a civil servant, and I have never served, and I, so I don't really know about the inner workings of it. So in this conversation. And part of what happens in this podcast all the time and these conversations is that I have a very distinct idea of something. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that I talk to people uh, from all different sort of occupations and walks of life is I've decided that maybe I don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> it took me 42 years to figure that out. It's good, though. Uh, yeah. Um, and so what I'm learning here is that, well, you know, okay, you're my per- speaking to myself, my mm-hmm. personal kind of like super radical politics aside um, – Maybe things can actually get done in government by thoughtful, compassionate, like really well-educated, really intelligent people. Um, and, and you've said that there are a number of them who are currently there now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my very kind of cynical, that's the word that I've always been tagged with, um, <laughs> sort of outlook on things, I, I just assume that all, no, not all, but I make a very sweeping generalization about politicians and people who are 
entirely beholden to corporate interests and all about getting reelected and making sure their, their coffers are filled so that they can um, run again. And when I think about the two years that you get as a, as a congressperson, like you're in office for two seconds and then you have to raise money for your next campaign. So like the cynical way to, to think about that is just like that's all they're about is, and that the, the people that are providing them with their campaign money are whoever they are, are people that they're beholden to. And there's and like the larger swath of constituents of people out there in the world who need health care and need access to good education, et cetera, and so on are being screwed. Like that, that's my like sweeping cynical generalization. Mm-hmm. Talking to you, I'm like, well, maybe not. <laughs> Maybe there are really real ser- real civil servants out there. And I know this to be true, but until today, I don't think I've ever spoken to one. Mm-hmm. So um, this that's my comment. You and should then, come to D.C. with me sometime. I'll introduce you to I would love to. I would, lo- I would love to. Restore your faith in humanity. I, can, we really, can we do that? I would love to. That would be fantastic. And that bridges my next question, which I think I already know the answer to. Um, but, you know, we're sort of headed there. So are you going to do it again? So we are still working on the 2018 run to see if it's possible. So I told you we just got those numbers in recently. And um, running for Congress, as you can imagine, is a very serious endeavor. I I thought it was all fun and games. So, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you don't give up 18 months of your life working 18 hours a day for no pay unless you really think something's possible. And so what we want to do is just double check those numbers for 2018 um, and make sure that it's in fact. So for 2016, you were sure it's possible. Mm-hmm. But until so you're. Because it's a mid. So you have a midterm, right? So we want to go back and look those people who came out for Trump that then also voted for Smucker. Right, right, right. Are they, in fact, going to come out again? It's a midterm year, right? There's a number of calculations to make around that. So. Are they disillusioned? We don't know. We don't know. Is the answer to, and we won't know. So the disappointing part about 2018, as much as I can have numbers, is that we won't know anything until November of 2018. Mm-hmm. So what we know, and again, this is based on my experience in politically chaotic environments, particularly dictatorships around the world. So I base what I'm about to say off of a lot of experience, and that is that in a situation as chaotic as this one where depending on the day depending on the tweet it's like up down roller coaster ride that level of chaos and you alluded to this in your um in one of your comments um you know if this man declares world war three in august of 2018 then i lose because Democrats don't win in times of war, right? So, like, I don't know. I can't know. You're not going to know. No one's going to know until the election of 2018 happens. So the best thing that we can do is come up with a strategy to make sure that based on hedging bets, and again, this is serious business. So this is data, historical data. We have data that goes back many, 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 many cycles. We look at all that data. We put it all together. You know, we run... Regressions. We run the whole thing. We figure out, like, was 2016 an anomaly? Do we want to take those voters out? Will they show up again? If we think they're going to show up again, what does it look like? And how many people need to come out to vote in order for me to win? If they don't show up to vote this time, how many people do you know? It's for reals. (laughs) (laughs) And anyone who's not telling you that doesn't know what they're doing. And that's what I would say for getting back to your comments about, um, 
you know, sort of being on the far left or the far right or whatever and coming to that middle and finding solutions that we can all be a part of. We're always going to have things on either side, right? But it's how we get to the middle that's important. So it's not just about how smart you are. It's about how good you are at convincing other people that your idea is the best idea and that you have the personality and the intellect, if you need it, and whatever else to deliver that message and quote unquote, sell it to others. So that's what we're doing, you know, as part of a political process. But more importantly, that's what needs to be done inside Capitol Hill. And if you do want to treat government like a business, then that's how it works. Because if you work for a business and you're a vice president and you need to present to the CEO your latest idea and how it's going to make the company more money, right? Like you come up with the way to sell that. And oh, by the way, you talk to all your subordinates and you get them on board. And then you talk to your colleagues who are also vice presidents and you get them on board and you galvanize support. You consolidate your power. Like these are things that people do every day in their work lives. And it's what's going on on Capitol Hill. But what we want to do is do that in a way that where all voices are heard and people feel like things are getting accomplished. Because right now, nothing has been done. So we are paying our congressman $174,000 a year to twiddle his thumbs. Or in the case of the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, to celebrate with beer in the Rose Garden for doing his job. Well, that sounds like we're giving out trophies to every kid on the team for not doing much. We are at a crossroads because we are so polarized. But the question is, Sam, in 2018, will people be ready for a message of unity? Or will they want to stay where they are and to not come to the center? And I don't mean necessarily come to the center, politically speaking, but to come together, to unify, and to move this country forward. I guess we'll see. But as, I mean, like we talked about, it's like there... In every industry, there are good ways of doing things and bad ways of doing things. And there are good companies and bad companies. There's good government and bad government. There's good employees. There's bad employees. Like, again, why? <laughs> we, we try to, like, vilify certain sectors. So super-duper lefty people try to vilify the corporations. And super-duper right-wing people try to vilify government. I'm like, no. Like, that's insane. We all have a role to play. Now, that doesn't mean we want to give the farm away and, like you know, have corporations not paying any tax, like, as in, but there's, it's never, and, and I used to be, like, growing up, I used to be a very black and white person, and I gotta say, like, starting in my mid-20s, I started to find that gray, and my life has been exceptionally better because of it. Thanks for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. I agree with Christina Hartman's point that we must come to the middle to make real progress in government. And she made a convincing case that there are public servants out there who stay true to the label and don't merely bow to the pressure of corporate dollars. I hope we do find time to take a trip down to Capitol Hill together. I'd really like to see things in action. I remain, however, entrenched in what I believe are well-informed enough opinions on the stranglehold corporate America exerts upon so much of our economy, our policymaking, and our policymakers. And additionally, on the media outlets that push that same agenda, emphasizing our worth as consumers rather than citizens and voters. 
I also still believe that we desperately need more options than what is currently on offer. As I alluded to in our conversation, and as I've made clear here before, I have absolutely no affinity for the neoliberal policies that the Democratic Party has adhered to and enacted over the past quarter of a century. And despite detractors, including several close friends of mine, I maintain that I'm convinced by evidence provided that the Democratic Party has indeed engaged in corrupt activity over the years, most recently in the 2016 election. I also think it's dreadfully out of touch with, and frankly dismissive of, what Americans are really thinking and feeling on either side of the political spectrum. And as Christina mentioned, Americans are all too frequently besmirched by media outlets for being dumb and uneducated. And that's tremendously unfair. I do think I made my point, though, however briefly, that it's simply an effort on the part of these parties to cling to power in the political system we inhabit. Others, much more well-traveled than I and often malign, have made the case that a third-party platform severely threatens that long-time hegemony, which is why they've largely been silenced. Take, for example, the treatment Green Party candidate Jill Stein received when attempting to attend the second presidential debate in 2012. That's attempting to attend, by the way, not participate in. She was arrested and held off-site in a warehouse for eight hours during the debate, while chained to a chair. They didn't even let her go to the bathroom. And she had a ticket to the debate. Are they so terrified of a 65-year-old female physician? Maybe it's because she's from Chicago. She and I have the same birthday, I just discovered. Hmm... And regardless of what you think of Ralph Nader's ill-fated presidential runs in the early 2000s, his arguments about the increasingly critical call for a challenge to the duopoly are simple and straightforward. I'll link to an interview or two on my website in which he makes this case. A look at the 2017 French and British election results tells a similar story. Some might even argue that the impulses behind Brexit and Trumpism are fueled by the same nascent desire to shake up the system, though these last are woefully misguided, of course. Still, I also understand that finding a candidate who is perfectly aligned with my views in terms of both foreign and domestic policy is more than unlikely. This is where the growing up Christina Hartman talks about comes into play. I think it's also important, as much as one can these days, to get to know the representatives in government. And again, it appears that Lancaster offers another of its unique opportunities in this regard, because that's exactly what I was doing as I sat casually in Christina's kitchen with her. To be able to at least begin a conversation about policy issues like health care, education, reproductive rights, and taxes, with a person who, in this case, might have a chance of becoming my representative in government, is monumental. In 2016, Christina Hartman lost to her opponent, a guy I've named here specifically several times, so no need to do it again, by just under 35,000 votes. If she does run again in 2018, and uses the wealth of information she now has, perhaps she stands a decent chance of winning. If she does, I can say honestly, I have the ear of my congresswoman, which would be very, very cool. 
I'd like to thank Christina Hartman for inviting me into her home in Lancaster City and being so open with me. And I'd love to travel down to D.C. with her. I'd also like to say thank you to my new podcast host, Pippa. You can find them at pippa.io. They've been great, and they're free. They have responsive customer service, and their hosting is ridiculously easy to use. For a guy operating not on a shoestring budget, but instead what I'd call a string theory budget, I couldn't ask for anything more. And I really can't, because they host both of my podcasts for free. I say both podcasts because I've started a new one. It's called Wonder With Us and is essentially a shameless ripoff of the West Wing Weekly podcast in which hosts Josh Molina and Rishi Herway watch one episode a week of the West Wing and then discuss it. I'm now doing the same, sort of. My family and I are watching The Wonder Years, that quintessential coming-of-age serial from the late 1980s. My wife and two children, aged 8 and 5, watch as Kevin Arnold grows up in the late 1960s. And then we all comment on watching the show now in the 20-teens. We invite you to take a listen. Again, it's called Wonder With Us, and you can find it on my website, samshimmer.com, and also on Apple Podcasts. Once again, thanks for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. Feedback is always welcome, as are reviews on iTunes, which help new listeners find the show. More to come. More to come.